Well, we've broken ground on another building that will be used by the Lord to help make the uh, last quarter of people's lives the most creative quarter of their life. The Creative Life Center for Retired and Senior Adults can be, and I believe should be, the most creative part of life. You have experience, you have education, you have abilities that can be used for the glory of God and the welfare of the community in ways far beyond any potential group ever has had such an opportunity. Just think. And we are fortunate to have such a great group in our church, which I know with this added facility and expanded ministries will, will increase. So we're talking about building, and I want to tell you a story about uh, uh, the greatest builder of all. In fact, a story he told. Over 50% of everything Jesus said was a story. Most of the Bible is a story. If, if, if you've read the Bible or been kind of hesitant to read the Bible, and, or if you've read it and you got over there caught up in some of those Levitical laws, or you got to reading some of those begat chapters that just go on endlessly, endlessly, you've missed some of the great stories of mankind the Bible is a story. It's, a, it's God's story, too. It's God's story to us and our relationship to him and our relationship with one another. And Jesus told a lot of stories. They're called parables. A parable is just a, sh- a short story with a long meaning. And uh, he had preached a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in the 5th, 6th, and 7th chapters of the book of Matthew. You can turn again to page 961 if you have that <clears throat> Bible and, and you don't have your own Bible. The Bible there in the book rack in front of you. Now, we don't know whether Jesus preached this all at one time or not. Uh, He could have, but uh, in all probability, it was a combination of things that these disciples, uh, inspired by uh, Matthew and Luke particularly, uh, wrote down stories and ideas that Jesus said, and it was inspired uh, by the Spirit of God to put them together as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, he may have done it all at one time. We just don't know. Uh, but at the conclusion of that sermon, he comes to a therefore in the 24th verse of the 7th chapter. Therefore, anytime you read the word therefore in the Bible, it means get ready. Because he has something to say to us. You can say da 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 Therefore, here's what it means. Here's the crux of the matter. Here's the meat of the coconut right here. Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, underline that because that's the key. Puts them into practice. Not just hears them, but puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice... Is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. In my mind, Jesus is talking about two men. They may have been neighbors or friends, may even have been brothers. Because Jesus used a lot of stories about brothers. These two fellows probably knew one another. They, they certainly had the same desires. Uh, they desired to build a house. They desired to build a house for their family, for themselves, a place of refuge, a place of beauty, a place for their children to grow up. Obviously, 
That's a noble desire, a commendable one. Not only did they desire to build a house, but they desired to build it in the same subdivision. They wanted to build it near each other, maybe even next door to each other. They wanted to build a house, and they wanted to build it in the same place, the same locality. But another similarity is that both of them had some stresses come into their life, some tests, some difficulties, some problems, external and or internal. The rains came, the floods rose, and the winds blew. They do in everybody's life. It's not just a nice song, but into each life some rain must fall. Into each life some rain will fall. There's an old Spanish proverb which states, There is no home which does not at some time know its hush. All of us are vulnerable. Not one of us in this room or on this planet has been immunized against trouble. We can be Christians. Jesus never promised Christians they wouldn't have trouble. In fact, he promised we would have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world and I'm going to help you overcome your problems. That's what it means. Jesus doesn't come in and give us some sort of shot, shot and suddenly we never get a cold. We never have any financial problems. Our children never do anything that's unpleasant. Everything is just peaches and cream. Well, that's not so. The big difference is those who make it through the storm and those who do not. And the key to making it through the storm has something to do outside of them. It has something to do with something inside them. So the differences between these two men, as you look at this story, is something that went on beneath the surface. And I'm not only referring to the surface of the ground, I'm talking about the surface of their minds. Their attitudes, their priorities, something that went on underground that made the difference between these two men. Now, I've preached on this story many times in the years I've been here, looking at it from one direction or another. And as I was studying about it most recently, and I've not spoken on it for years and years now, I've come to to a conclusion. I don't think anything I said in the past was wrong. I think it may have been inadequate to a degree. As I've looked at it now from more experience myself and more understanding of the Bible and hopefully more understanding of the Lord himself. I don't think this story is primarily about storms that come into people's lives. I don't think it's storms, external storms, that make the difference. I don't think that's really what this story is revealing to us. If we interpret it because of the differences created or revealed by the storm... I think it's inadequate, if not wrong. Because, you see, if that's the story, by the time you get to the story, it's already too late. You you can't do anything to rectify it. The house is gone. The life is shattered. So I believe he's doing more than just telling us a story about storms and what they can do to houses or to us. I think Jesus' purpose in all of this is to Warn us so as to save us from personal disaster. And the source of the disaster is internal, internal 
in those two men. It was not primarily an external issue. That was a consequence. The primary problem was inside these two men. Their attitude, their sense of priority, what happened to the two houses is a consequence. The cause was an attitude, a priority, or lack of one. To help us understand this a little better, turn to Luke, the sixth chapter, page 1021 there in the Bible, in the book rack in front of you. Page 1021, you'll come to the sixth chapter of Luke and the 46th verse. Let me read that to you in following. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I mean, why do you go around just professing this faith all the time and don't let it get translated inside of you? To the control center of your life and mine. You call me Lord, Lord, you say good things and it's wonderful and I like to hear it. But... Why doesn't it translate into Monday morning for you? Why doesn't it make a a difference in the breakfast table, in your family relationships? I mean, why doesn't it do something? It's easy to say something. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not not do it? I will show what uh, he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. Not just profession, but practice. Underline that because you're going to hear it over and over through this story, both from Matthew and Luke. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep. Underline that also. We're not talking about some surface individual. We're talking about somebody who's going to get down. Get down. Get some roots. Dig down deep. And lay the foundation on rock. So we're going to do out here. It's what we've done here. It's what we've done in the children's building. I hope that's what you've done at your house. More important than that, I hope that's what you're doing in your home, which is different from your house. A house is just a place where you put a home. In your home. And even more of a priority than that in our own hearts. For out of the heart proceed the issues of life. Out of the heart proceed family issues. Out of the heart proceed community issues. Out of the heart proceed building of homes and houses and churches, buildings and libraries, museums, whatever. Dug down deep, laid the foundation on a rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was built, because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck the house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Take a quick look at this fellow that didn't have a good foundation, that just built his house out there on the ground. Try to analyze him a little bit. Try to picture him. When you read the Bible, don't just read the words. Crawl in between the lines. Use your imagination. 
Because the writers of the Bible, they had, it was scarce material they had to write with and it was difficult to do. So they just kind of give us the outline and they expect us to use our minds motivated by and directed by the Spirit of God to kind of fill in what happened. Don't read the Bible so fast that you miss the feeling of it, the emotion that's going on. What was this guy's attitude that didn't want to build a foundation? Well, I think he was one of these folks that uh, was always in a hurry. Always in a hurry. I mean, come on, man, let's get it done. I don't have time to go into all this research business. And uh, I, I know more about it than most of them do anyway. Uh, just come on, let's get on with it here. Uh, why spend some time doing stuff that nobody will see? Why dig way down deep? Nobody's going to see that foundation that my neighbor's building. Just costing him a lot of money, costing him some time. Just get the house up and have fun, man. Start enjoying it. He was in a hurry. Impatient, impetuous. Haste does make waste, doesn't it? It certainly can. Same thing can happen in school. Oh, I don't want to finish high school. I don't want to go to college. I don't want to spend all that time studying stuff I'll never use. Why do I have to study all that math? I'm not going to be a CPA or I'm not going to be a teacher. It'll help you to know how to add. April the 15th will give you a good lesson in learning how to add and how to subtract. Don't, listen, young people, don't take a shortcut. You got a big, long life out there, much longer life expectancy than many of us in this room. Take time to get ready. Did you realize Jesus himself waited 30 years before he began his ministry? In a day when the life expectancy was 35, he was 30 years of age before he began the greatest work that any man ever did on the face of the earth. Don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry. Be persistent. Be consistent. But don't try to cut corners. Because when you cut corners, you're cutting off potential in your own life. Oh, some people try to take a shortcut to, th to thrills with drugs too, don't they? Life's not exciting enough, life's not invigorating enough, you're not having enough fun, so you pop something in your mouth or in your veins and you blow your life away. Don't try to take a shortcut to peace. Let the peace of God come into your life. Don't try to take a shortcut to a thrill. Let the thrill of being a follower of the Lord and making a difference in the lives of people. Don't try to take a shortcut. I think that's what this guy did. Another thing I think he did, he ignored the past. Any society is in trouble when it begins to ignore its history. Individuals are. We don't realize where we've come from. Now, I don't mean to say that you ought to spend all of your time in genealogy, but I do believe you ought to spend some time knowing what were the values that made us who we are and what we are and the kind of society we had. That's why I've recommended everybody reading The Greatest Generation, not because some of us feel like we were part of that generation, but because you can't understand America today without understanding what people did before that. In fact, I think it ought to be required reading in every American history class in high school in San Antonio. It will help you understand what people can do when they lay aside their personal desires and work together for a common cause and lay down lives for their brothers and we are the recipients of that kind of commitment. We need to remember where we've come from. The world didn't begin when we were born. 
The world didn't begin the day we were born. We, I, I'm reading right now a book that was my son Steve gave me for my birthday and, entitled The Century. I'm going back and starting everything in the read it all the way up through the, the 20th century. I've lived through about 20 years of it. Uh, oh, I've lived through 75% of it. But my father and mother were part of that first part of it. So it helps me know better who I am. And so don't take, uh, don't take a shortcut and uh, ignore the past. I think this fellow felt like he knew it all. Ah, man, I know it all. I can pull this thing off. I can do a deal and get it done. You know, uh, let me parenthetically at that point say, I believe there's a tendency sometimes for people, it can happen, I, I think specifically maybe to preachers, being one I can talk about them, the, the tendency to, be, to feel like that because we may be proficient in one area of life, we may have some proficiency in Bible study or preaching or communication of some kind, that that suddenly makes us an authority on world politics. Most preachers don't know beans about world politics. And I know they get all involved in the political system, and I think we ought to be involved in the moral standards and all of that sort of thing. But simply because you are a great financier doesn't automatically mean that you are also a great brain surgeon. Excellence in one area does not make you proficient in every area. And that's, that's one of the things that comes along with success, a kind of insidious egotism. I believe one of the major ingredients in humility is the recognition of limitation. That we need one another. A recognition of limitation. We are not self-made men. God save us from people who think they're self-made. All of us have some fingerprints upon us that have brought us where we are. We are the product of a lot of good things that have happened to us. And we've even learned from the bad things that happened to us. And just being a devoted, consecrated Christian doesn't suddenly make you proficient and an expert in every area of life. Now, my son Steve just had six hours of uh, surgery the neurosurgeon on Friday. And he's had years and years and years of experience and he's done this hundreds and hundreds, I suppose even thousands of times. In fact, he may be here today. He's often here on Sunday morning. But I tell you, when Steve had to have this surgery, I think there probably are some very dedicated, fine, conscientious Christian medical students out there at the med school. And some of them are going to want to, to major in neurosurgery. And they would say, Buckner, listen, I love the Lord. And I know the Lord will guide me and direct me and I can have the mind in me which is in Christ Jesus and I can be taught all of this, this medicine that all these doctors know. Let me operate on Steve. I'd say, you know, I really appreciate your commitment and I appreciate your willingness. But you know what? Call on me in about eight or ten years after you have practiced it. Practiced it. What he said, wasn't it? Put it into practice. Enthusiastic commitment to Jesus Christ does not become a substitute for homework, for commitment, for digging down deep into the soil of even greater potentiality. Well, I've talked enough about the foolishness of the uh, the qualities of the foolish man. Well, it's pretty easy to talk about the opposite, the wise man. He's just the opposite of that. 
He was was the opposite of this. Realize something that all of us must realize, however erudite we might be. That the foundation that is essential to life is the foundation Paul tells us about in 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, 11th and 12th verses. That's a page 1129 if you'd like to read it. It's a bottom right part of that page in the Bible there. Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11. By the grace of God, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an excellent builder and others are building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, the day he's talking about is the day of the return of the Lord, the day of judgment. The day will bring it to life. Now, I think it's very important to not misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Uh, He is not saying that there's anything wrong with all of these marvelous furnishings for your house. He's not saying that there's anything wrong with all these wonderful furnishings for your life. Gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. All of those things that are good, they're good materials, they're good decorations. What he is saying is, he is not saying that these things are wrong. He is saying that these things are inadequate to build your life on. They will not last. You can have the most beautifully furnished home in San Antonio. You can be in House Beautiful. You can be the cover of American Home Magazine or whatever's out there. And there are many of them on the newsstand. All of that's wonderful. And that's what we see. And we all want to enjoy that. And we should enjoy that. But that is not the source of the strength of that home and the strength of that house. The strength of it is down deep in the soil of the people who live there and that house is but an outward reflection of their qualities of commitment to the rock beneath them and the gifts of God adorning them which they all use together for the glory of God. Nothing wrong with all those pretty things. Build your life upon them and they won't hold up on the day when Jesus comes. The one thing that will hold us up On the day he comes, it's where we're standing, on the rock. Now, if you build your house upon the rock, you have three major rooms in that house, probably a lot more. But the first one is a great big room called forgiveness. Because if you have placed your life on the rock of ages, your sins are gone. You say, Buckner, but I still remember them. Well, Jesus says he's forgotten them. He says he remembers them against us no more. God's your friend. He's not against you. You understand God's the master builder. Look at the universe. He knows what he's doing. And if he says for Buckner Fanning to put his life upon him, that he will take away all my sin, all the sins of the past, Stuff that I don't need to remember because he has forgotten. And the only reason it ever comes across my mind as a recollection is because it reminds me I don't want to fall in that trap again. That didn't work for me 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And it surely will not work for me now. You're forgiven. All of your sins are gone. I wish you could understand that. I believe it's Carl Menninger who said, if 
people could accept the fact that God forgives us of our sins. <coughs> Excuse me, about half of the patients in our mental hospitals <coughs> would be released. Your sins are forgiven. There's another big room, and that's a room of strength for the present. No rain is going to fall too hard. No flood rise too fast. No wind blow so destructively that God will not keep you on your feet. You put your feet on the rock of ages and all of the exigencies of life can swirl about you. And God will be there to bring you through. God never promised to save us from trouble. But he promised to be with us in the middle of trouble. And that he will never forsake us. Never. And then there's hope for the future. Hope for the future. <coughs> Excuse me. You don't need to worry about Y2K. God knew way about it long before they even invented computers. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about when the Lord comes back because nobody knows. Don't go buy a bunch of books and try to figure it out and say, oh my goodness, he's coming on January the 1st of the year 2000. I can promise you this. I do not know when Jesus is coming back. Nobody does. He said, no one knows. The angels in heaven don't know. Jesus said, I don't know. Only the Father knows. Apparently some writers in America know, but still, God, Jesus didn't know it. And none of the angels knew it. But I do know this, and I, I believe every word Jesus said. And he said, I will come when least expected. So I don't expect him before January the 1st of the year 2000. Because everybody is expecting him. So I'm kind of relaxed about it. I'm not worried about the end of the time as much as I am the end of the month. Just kind of go on. Just let it come. Let it happen. It's all in God's hands. It's not our time that's at, at, uh, the, the, the director here. It's not our time that's a critical factor here. It's God. So your future, if you're standing on the rock, it doesn't make any difference when the sand begins to sink. Right? Or are you standing on the rock? Change the metaphor a little bit, but same story, same truth. A story I heard many, many years ago, or read many years ago. An elderly man living in Scotland, living in a thatched roof house. There's a lot, I haven't been to Scotland, but I understand a lot of houses, particularly in earlier days, had thatched roofs. And an elderly man was in his home, simple home, with a thatched roof. And he was dying. His friends knew he was dying. He knew he was dying. And he was getting winter. Winter was coming. And his friends came to him and said, do we need to fix your roof, thatch your roof? And the man said, no, I thatched my roof while the sun was shining. Move from the roof to the foundation. Build your foundation." While the sun is shining. Begin now. To reach down deep. To meet the rock of ages. And you'll not have to worry about winter. Or death. Or the future. You stand on the rock. 
you will outlast time. Maybe you'd begin your foundation step this morning by making a profession of faith in the Lord as your Savior. That's the way it starts. You say, Bugner, I don't understand much about it. I don't understand a thing in the world about digging a foundation for a house either. But the master builder said, if I will just put my faith in him, he's already dug it out and all I have to do is step on it. Would you do that this morning? Maybe God's impressing you to come to be a part of the life of this church. You're a believer and you want to follow the Lord. What do I have to do to become a member of this church? Just say you want to be a member of this church. No test given. No references needed. If you feel this is where God wants you to be, you're at home. We welcome you. Or if you want to come and pray, just come kneel and pray and return to your seat without saying a word to me. That's wonderful. In fact, it's better to talk to him than to me. But if I can help, I'm here. We'll be right here to greet you, to trust the Savior, to come be a part of the life of this church, recommit your life to him. Don't anybody move. Don't be in a hurry. Got a few moments, very important moments in some people's lives. I'll be here to greet you. Let's stand and sing.